Last time we spoke about the crazy scramble between the Japanese and Americans as a result of the preparation for Operation KE. The American Intelligence Network was working overtime trying to figure out what the Japanese were cooking up, while the Japanese did their best to feint and hide their intentions. Then we spoke about the enormous offensive performed by the US Army and the 2nd Marine Division on Guadalcanal. The Americans continued to advance west of the Matanikau and south against the Gifu. The Galloping Horse and the Seahorse would prove to be quite difficult to advance upon, costing countless lives. Like ants crawling up a hill, the Americans seized hill after hill, gradually neutralizing the Japanese presence in the Mount Austin area. But for today, we are going to come to a conclusion to the last remaining toehold of the failed Port Moresby campaign, San Ananda. This episode is the fall of the Gifu and San Ananda. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I am just now finishing up a multi-part series on things you might not know about the attack on Pearl Harbor. Alongside that, I also now have a Patreon account. You can find it at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And perhaps there are some subjects you want to hear more about, but it can't be displayed here on other podcasts I'm part of? Well, that's the purpose of my Patreon account. There will be exclusive content and a hell of a lot of early access. The first episode that's exclusive is a comparison of the fentanyl crisis in North America today versus the 19th century opium wars. So please give it a look if you can, and you can always catch me at the Pacific War Channel Discord or over at the Kings and Generals Discord server. Now just before we dive back into the San Ananda front, we need to talk a bit more about Guadalcanal. The 17th Army had received quite the jolt from General Patch's soldiers and the remaining Marines on Guadalcanal. On January the 13th, the 17th Army HQ weighed three options laid before them. Number one, they could mount an aggressive defense, which might result in the quick collapse of their entire army. Number two, they could conduct a more cautious defense to prolong the struggle as long as possible. And number three, as a means of a last resort, they could launch a massed attack through the coastal area or more inland with the objective of taking the enemy's HQ. The staff officers christened that last idea with the poetic shorthand name, Gaiokusai, gem shattering into pieces. But for obvious reasons, the 8th area army did not answer their requests for what should be done. Thus, in the meantime, the 17th Army chose to prolong the defense as long as they possibly could. 
A Tokyo Express run on January the 14th was well on its way, and Lieutenant Colonel Imoto demanded the duty of carrying the orders for the 8th Area Army to withdraw from Guadalcanal. Aboard the Tokyo Express were units, the majority from the Yano Battalion, a newly formed unit detailed to be the rearguard of the 17th Army as they retreated. They were led by Major Kaiji Yano, who was an expert on rearguard actions. He would be leading 750 men, and the gravity of his mission was not lost on him. This was an enormous task. Nine destroyers made their way safely to land their cargo and passengers at Cape Esperance. On their way back, they were attacked by 15 Dauntless, which managed to land a bomb on the skipper, Tanikaze, damaging her hull and the hull of the Arashi. A wave of B-17s and 14 fighter escorts showed up not too long after, not managing to hit any of the IGN ships. But they did manage to take quite a few peats down. On January 15th, Imoto and his group went to the 17th Army HQ, passing by the hospital, full of the sick, wounded, and dying. The stench was horrible. Many of the men, upon seeing Imoto, asked him, Where are the Japanese planes? When Imoto reached the 17th Army HQ, General Miyazaki greeted him and said, How late you have come. The attack plan should have been given a little earlier. Imoto then delivered the withdrawal order, much to the shock of Miyazaki and Konuma. Imoto was battered with objections and arguments for it being impossible to perform such a withdrawal. They told him the army was in no condition to withdraw and such an action would betray those who had already died on the damn island, and those currently encircled in the frontal defensive positions. Such a withdrawal would cost too many valuable ships and aircraft, and it would probably simply better off if the 17th Army just sacrificed itself in the service of Japan. Yamoto simply told them it was the orders of the Imperial HQ. General Imamura agreed to it, and Emperor Hirohito ordered it to be done regardless of difficulty. Despite this, Miyazaki and Konuma were unyielding, so Imoto went to General Haikutake. Haikutake's response when the order was read aloud to him was this. The question is very grave. I want to consider the matter quietly and alone for a little while. Please leave me alone until I call for you. Haikutake met with Miyazaki who argued for option Gaiusukai. By the 16th, Haikutake met again with Imoto, and he told him this. It is a very difficult task for the army to withdraw under existing circumstances. However, the orders of the area army, based upon orders of the emperor, must be carried out at any cost. I cannot guarantee it can be completely carried out, however. Now, despite Haikutake's acceptance of the withdrawal orders, he did not seem to have any faith it would actually work out. In fact, one of his staff officers remarked that the general intended to shave off his beard because he said to him, quote, It'll be so my face will not be ugly in death. Konuma, who was still openly talking about how they should still adopt the Kaiosuke option, ended up being the man assigned to issuing the withdrawal orders to the divisional HQ. When Konuma reached the 38th Division on the morning of January the 18th, he discovered that their officers had independently concluded their unit would take up the Gaiokusai option set for January the 21st. 
They denounced the orders for withdrawal, with Sano stating, You can choose any place to die. Gunuma gave no protest from the 2nd Divisional HQ towards the withdrawal orders. On January the 20th, Operation KE was explained in depth to the staff officers of the 17th Army, particularly that the operation was and had to remain in supreme secrecy with meticulous coordination. The orders listed the mission of the 17th Army was to move to Cape Esperance under the cover story that they were preparing for a new offensive. The operation would begin on the night of January the 22nd, whereupon the army would begin to pull back in stages during the hours of darkness. They appraised the 38th Division's decision as more of an endangerment to their maneuvers than a benefit. So they ordered Sano to break contact with his formation and to retire first. The Sendai Division and the Yano Battalion would cover the entire rearguard for all, moving through each phase line one night after the 38th Division. Those unable to move, well, as we have seen countless times, they were told, quote, to uphold the honor of the IJA. And yes, this meant committing suicide with the assistance of their brothers in arms, if necessary. Take a moment to think about this reoccurring aspect of the Pacific War. Whether it is ancient, medieval, or modern history, how many military forces do you know that performed mass suicide like this out of pure loyalty? I have a background touching numerous fields of history, and I can point out some figures from, let's say, ancient Rome. Hell, many of the Manchu during the wars of the 19th century performed suicide and even killed their family members, but not at the same level and intensity as the Japanese during the Pacific War. You often see instances where high-ranking commanders all across human history perform suicide to save face. But these men, they are quote-unquote the average Joes, the grunts. Whether you be a private or a general, many of the Japanese face their own swords rather than that of the enemy. It is a truly horrifying aspect of this war, and there are countless reasons for it. Literally, it would take up a probably an entire episode by itself to explain all the factors at play. The reason I'm bringing any of this up is, you know, just for, perhaps for those of you who are interested in such a discussion, or, you know, for those of you who listen to the other podcast I write and narrate for Kings and Generals, the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, you are probably groaning a bit by this shameless plug, but I just wanted to take a chance to just mention it here. Over at my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, I have a very small but very passionate audience. Quite a few people began donating money to me, asking if there was a better means to do so. They were literally pushing me to make a Patreon. And I'm going to be honest, I really didn't want to make one. The reason being, after doing some research, looking at other channels, and looking at what their Patreon accounts were actually giving their audience, I found it to be... A little bit of a cash grab. I mean, it's, you know, it's amazing to receive some perks, your names at the end of the credits, some early access to content, some shout outs and such, or just the ability to support, which is definitely needed by most of these creators, myself included. But the thing that really stuck out to me, if I was ever to create something like this, I couldn't do it without giving something truly special, something extra. 
Thus, the main point of my Patreon was to create exclusive content. But I didn't want to just create content that, well, I want to make, you know, things that interest me. I really wanted to make exclusive content that was akin to what my audience wanted. So, for example, the brutality of the Japanese Imperial Army, their unbelievable willingness to commit suicide, all of the factors that are at play to allow them to do something like this en masse, and from a grunt all the way up to a general. This is something that I actually know a lot about. I have read countless books. It is of interest to me to make an exclusive episode just on that subject alone. But is that something that is of interest to some of you? Anyways, I just wanted to take that as an example. If it is something that you are interested in, you can always find me over at uh, the Pacific War Discord or over at the Kings and Generals Discord server. Or hell, just leave a comment on any of my YouTube videos. I read them all. I mean, perhaps, and I do imagine there are quite a few of you who want to hear more about things like uh, the more gruesome stuff, like Unit uh, 731 or the Rape of Nanjing, you know, things like that. Things that aren't uh, so appropriate on YouTube, so to say. Oh, and I'll just end off by saying over on my Patreon, I'm open to doing uh, any types of history. So if you want to hear more things about, like, let's say, ancient Rome or, hell, I know a lot about the... Uh, Bosnian genocide, that's something I know a lot about. I actually, uh, I had to focus on quite a few courses on the history of genocide and the 1990s, uh, well, that history I know a lot about and it's, uh, that would be interesting for some content, but you know, saying all that, this is the end of my shameless plug. Sorry. During the night of January the 20th, the 1st Ship Engineer Regiment left for Cape Esperance, assuring that the orders regarding the honor of the IJA would be carried out. For those men not able to move, Perhaps to your surprise after kind of the big thing I made of all of the suicide stuff before. Or maybe not. These men carried away all their comrades using stretchers. They did not leave a man behind. It's one of those rare and touching moments I find. Now we turn to the south where the 35th Infantry Regiment was working on two assignments. The liquidation of the Gifu and the capture of the Seahorse. To accomplish these missions, Colonel Robert McClure ordered the 2nd Battalion to hit the Gifu and the 3rd Battalion to hit the Seahorse. The 1st Battalion was held in reserve behind the 3rd. The 3rd Battalion of the 124th Infantry sought to set up its regimental HQ on hills 43 and 44, which made up the said Seahorse. The battered survivors of the 1st Battalion positioned themselves in the valleys just due east of them. On January the 9th, the 3rd Battalion, 35th Infantry, marched south of Hill 43, going along a ridge where they would have a small clash with some Japanese supply parties, before they secured a portion of Hill 43, just 400 yards southwest of the Seahorse proper. By the 11th, they had captured the Seahorse, and by doing so, the Gifu had been cut off. On January the 12th, the 1st Battalion began to move west towards their divisional objective, but were halted by a Japanese stronghold. The enemy numbers were small, but their machine guns were firing at point-blank range through a narrow ridge just 20 feet wide. Thus, both the 3rd and 1st Battalions spent two days trying to find alternate routes around the choke point. But in the end, the 1st Battalion managed to use artillery and motors to smash the stronghold by the 15th, and the next day they marched to a ridge overlooking the Matanikau's southwest fork. The defenders of the Seahorse, some 40 men of the 1st Battalion, had slipped through the encirclement efforts of the 15th. McClure's forces counted over 558 dead, 
amounting to the rest of the 124th Infantry. Over at the Gifu, back on January the 9th, Lieutenant Colonel Ernest Peters, 2nd Battalion, 35th Infantry, had the very difficult task of withering down the Gifu. Initially prior to them, the 132nd Infantry had to set up in a 2,000-yard arc in front of the Gifu, dug in on hills 27, 29, and 31. When Peter and his men showed up, the 132nd gave them very inaccurate maps of the area, and an estimation that the Gifu contained only 100 Japanese and about two known machine gun nests. The actual figures were closer to 400 Japanese and over 20 machine gun nests altogether. McClure looked at the established lines the 132nd had made from hills 27 to 31 and surmised the only course of action was a frontal assault upon the Gifu. On the 10th, Peter set up a limited objective for the men to advance and take up a frontal position to secure their supply trail going up to Hill 27 and to simply prod and feel out the strength of the Gifu in the process. Each company sent two patrols forward and they were met with a maelstrom of machine gun fire and grenades sending them shockingly back. After seeing the strong resistance, Peters gauged that there had to be at least 400 Japanese and perhaps up to 20 machine guns. Oops. Thus, for three days, he sent out patrols to get more intel. But while this was all going on, the Japanese defenders did what they did best. Some good old-fashioned night raiding. The night infiltration attempts plagued the Americans for days, causing 57 casualties. Then, when the seahorse was captured, the Gifu became nearly isolated from the rest of the 17th Army. Upon discovering this, Major Inagaki sent the last telephone message from the Gifu back to the 17th Army HQ, simply stating, We will fight to the last. Around the same time, an American report from the Nightly Action had this to say, A lone Jap raider sneaked up barefoot to the observational post on Hill 27, trying to knock it out, or do or die. And die he did. No more Jap Raider. One body without shoes this morning. On January the 14th, Peter's battalion was beginning to be plagued by malaria, deaths, and the wounded. To offset the dilution of his forces, the regimental anti-tank company was placed into the front lines between companies F and G. At the same time, the Japanese infiltration attempts began to decrease mostly because of the constant shelling of the Gifu. It was taking a toll upon Inagaki's men. The 15th was scheduled for a general attack. Before the attack could commence, the Gifu was subjected to 15 minutes of artillery and motor fire. Then three companies, GF and the anti-tank, assaulted the eastern bulge of the Gifu. The Japanese fire was intense, forcing the attackers to hunker down upon the ground. They advanced only 50 yards. They made a second attempt at 2 p.m., but this crumbled quite quickly. The experience of this day was summarized quite well in the passage from the official U.S. Army history. At about 4.30, the battalion executive officer ordered one badly shaken platoon from G Company to withdraw. But as the order was passed, verbally along the line, the soldiers misinterpreted it as an order for the entire battalion to retire and all fell back. Peters was replaced with Major Stanley Larson on the 16th because of his lackluster performance. 
And after a quick reconnaissance of the area, Larson said of the Japanese at the Gifu, The Japanese had a strong ring of mutually supporting, well-camouflaged pillboxes, covering approximately three-fifths of the circumference of the said Gifu. Larson understood the Japanese had no intentions of escaping, and he knew, with the men he had on hand, reducing the Gifu would take an incredible loss of life. Based on his assessment, Larson decided to extend his lines from hills 27 to 42 to prepare for a large bombardment of the Gifu scheduled to start on the 17th. While the men went to work on this, loudspeakers blared appeals to surrender to the Gifu. The loudspeakers managed to pull around five Japanese, and one of these men had an extraordinary tale to tell. He told his American captors that his company held a meeting because 80% of them were too weak or too ill to physically walk over to surrender. They elected not to surrender as a result, believing their sick and weak would perish if they laid down their arms. So instead, they voted to die together. On the 17th, the men on Hill 27 backed up around 300 yards as 99 howitzers began firing from Hills 27, 31, 42, and 43. At 2.30 p.m., the guns had fired 1,700 shells. By 4 p.m., shells were hitting the Gifu every three seconds. Prisoners taken from the Gifu over the course of 10 days were shell-shocked. On the 18th, they attacked the Gifu from the rear, and on the 20th, they tightened their grip around it, and then on the 21st, they prodded it for more weak spots. On the night of the 21st, they saw many Japanese coming out in small parties, trying to escape, costing the lives of 11. On the 22nd, three light tanks had been brought over to the Gifu, though only one was in good enough condition to perform an assault. The other two were so battered by the drive up the slopes. Captain Teddy Deese took command of the single tank and he plunged it right at the Gifu at 10.40am, with Company G backing him up. He quickly blasted eight pillboxes, one reportedly taking four 37mm high-explosive shells at close range to crumble. He breached a gap of 200 yards, allowing the 2nd Battalion to surge past the rim of the broken pillboxes. On the 23rd, at 2.30am, an estimated 100 Japanese screamed as they tossed grenades and fired pistols and rifles at the breach. This started a 20-minute brawl, leaving 85 dead Japanese, with three captured. After inspecting the dead, one was revealed to be Major Inagaki and Nishihata, the commanders of the 2nd Battalion 124th Infantry. Amongst them were also counted 8 captains and 15 lieutenants. The success of the tank assault and the extreme lunge of 100 Japanese convinced Larson that the Gifu was all but broken. On the morning of January the 23rd, Larson sent his battalion forward and by sunset the Gifu was captured at the cost of one American wounded. 64 men of the 2nd Battalion, 35th Infantry added to the total of 175 men who lost their lives taking the Gifu. They captured 40 machine guns, 12 mortars, 200 rifles, 38 swords, and counted around 431 dead Japanese. The 35th Infantry claimed their casualty numbers in that area between January the 9th and the 26th to be around 888 dead. 29 prisoners, and another 188 dead by artillery. The Gifu had fallen, and now General Patch looked only west. Returning to Green Hell, Generals Oda and Yamagata had taken over command of the Gurosananda Front. 
and at the end of December, Lieutenant Ogawa of the Asai unit reported to the newly arrived General Oda that they were under daily motor shelling. Lieutenant Misasue was ill, but still trying to lead his men. Lieutenant Munenaga had malignant fever, but continued to command his men from his bunker when he was not passed out, and that in general all the officers and privates were in some way patients for various illnesses and there was an increasing number of men going insane. Food, of course, was scarce, but even without provisions, Ogawa pledged the men would continue to defend the front line. When General Oda arrived to Girwa on December the 22nd, he told his new forces they would be reinforced because Japan would never let Girwa fall, thus fueling more and more of the ever-growing rumors that reinforcements were simply on the way. The truth was, Tokyo had difficult ideas. The Imperial General HQ decided on January the 4th because of the lack of shipping and the inability to deliver supplies that Operation KE took precedence. On January the 4th, it was decided, while Guadalcanal's forces were moved incrementally at night to the Northern Solomons, the forces in Gura would also be moved over to Ley in Salamawa after the two bases had been reinforced. The 102nd Regiment was sent to Ley, but the order for the withdrawal of Gura was not passed on to Yamagata until the 13th of January. On January the 12th, General Oda, in desperation, sent a message to General Adachi, stating this, Most of the men are stricken with dysentery. Those not in bed with illnesses are without food and too weak for hand-to-hand fighting. Starvation is taking many lives and is weakening our already extended lines. We are doomed. In several days, we are bound to meet the same fate that overtook Basaboa and Buna. Our duty will have been accomplished if we fight and lay down our lives here in the field. However, this would mean that our foothold in New Guinea would be lost, and the sacrifices of our fellow soldiers during the past six months will have been in vain. I urge that reinforcements be landed near Gona at once. General Adachi ordered Yamagata to evacuate Sanananda and Gura the next day. The forces were to withdraw to the mouths of the Mamusi and the Mambari rivers and travel by sea to Ley. As many sick and wounded as possible were to be evacuated by barges from Girwa, but the rest would have to break through the Allied lines to go overland to a Japanese-held pocket beyond Gona and then onwards to the Kamusi River's mouth. The entire operation was to be delayed until the 25th, when there would be enough moonlight to aid the ships. At this point, Yamagata was not aware Tsukamoto's force had already departed, but that the Allies were also unaware of this. On the 14th, a patrol sent south from a roadblock looking for the current northern reaches of the Japanese defensive perimeter found a sick soldier hiding in some bushes. They interrogated the man and found out every able-bodied man had already left the sector. This prompted Vesey to order the men to pursue the fleeing Japanese. The Allies pushed through and broke the perimeter and had a few firefights with those Japanese too ill or wounded to evacuate, killing them all. General Oda moved his HQ closer to the coast and handed command of the central sector to Colonel Fuchiyama of the Anti-Aircraft Artillery Battalion. In that sector was also the 2nd Battalion of the 41st led by Major Kowai and the 144th led by Major Keito. In the southwest sector, the Australians had advanced upon the Killerton Track and took Killerton Village without any opposition. 
over on the San Ananda track, an American platoon managed to infiltrate the defensive lines of the Murarasi forces, forcing them to move further up the track just a bit forward of the central sector. They fiercely held off the Americans for a day, but the next day brought two Stuart tanks and a ton of artillery and motor fire their way. Major Murase's men discreetly withdrew under the cover of night to the western end of the central sector before these forces could be fully brought to bear upon them. On the 16th, the Allies launched an all-out attack on all fronts. The Australians marched from Killerton Village to Cape Killerton and down the coast towards Y Point, where they ran into stiff resistance from Colonels Tomita and Yazawa, who were commanding the coastal sector's defenses. Thus, the beach between Y Point and San Ananda was still firmly in Japanese hands for now. Another Australian company trekked it from Killerton Village to San Ananda, wading through some swampland to emerge at the rear of the central sector, while American forces pushed further north from a roadblock. This began an encirclement of the Japanese forces causing high casualties. The 15th Independent Engineers led by Colonel Yokoyama were trying to evacuate the ill and wounded from the coastal areas west of San Ananda Point. On the 16th, they assembled the ill and wounded on a narrow strip of beach just 4 meters wide, quite vulnerable to artillery attacks, and they had no tools to dig in. The evacuees simply laid down and many would be killed or suffer more wounds from artillery. By the end of the night of the 17th, as the Allied forces drew closer, they saw two barges silently approaching the beach, and this caused a major scramble with people grabbing another trying to jump aboard. When Yokoyama got to Barumbari, General Yamagata ordered him to return to Girwa because the barges that took them were actually intended for Yamagata's use. Yokoyama sent him a medical report showcasing he was suffering from high fever and terrible diarrhea. Thus, he could not comply. This was not a ploy, by the way. He did have a fever of over 40, and he was periodically injected with morphine just to be able to command his men prior to the barges showing up. Yamagata was understandably furious, and he telegraphed the Army HQ court-martial orders for Yokoyama, though no official inquiry was ever made. Colonel Fuchiyama and his men defending the central sector were being squeezed by the Allies from all sides without any orders to withdraw. The coastal defenses were being smashed by artillery, and the Allies were beginning to take inroads into the defensive lines. General Yamagata deemed the situation at Girwa too dire to wait until the 25th for withdrawing, so he took the eight barges he had available at Mambar and began to move all the sick and wounded, not fully trapped by the Allies' advance, to the hospital staging areas at Girwa by the 18th. Yamagata then ordered the Buna detachment to withdraw to the mouth of the Kumusi beginning at 8 p.m. on January the 20th. The 170th Infantry would have to break through the Allied lines to Barumbai, where they would be evacuated by barges on the 19th and the 20th. The Buna Detachment HQ, including Yamagata, would depart in one of these barges as well. The new orders were passed over to General Oda, who sent messengers to tell other units like Fuchiyama. Fuchiyama was beside Major Kowai when he read the message aloud. This is not possible. Our force does not have enough strength to break through the enemy. Thus, Fuchiyama and Kowai agreed they would simply stay, burn the regimental colors of the 41st, and prepare for an honorable death. When Kowai went over to his unit, he found out that they had heard about the withdrawal orders. Kowai tried to persuade his men to fight to an honorable death, 
but some of his engineers and supply troops began asking, If they are military orders, should we not withdraw? Thus the decision was reversed, and they would withdraw, but this now meant Kowai was in charge of planning an impossible breakthrough the Allied perimeter. When Kowai asked Fuchiyama, What about transport of casualties? Fuchiyama simply bowed his head in silence and sighed, Living is certainly harder than dying. The path for withdrawal was to be through a part of the Allied perimeter that was the least active. On the 20th, torrential rain began to fall, and for once, the Japanese were happy for it. They moved under the cover of night, and the torrential rain without being caught, some men literally moving only 30 meters away from Allied positions. By 8 p.m., in the rain, the men assembled on the road in the center of camp as they bid farewell to the stretcher-bound wounded men who they had instructed to to take their lives before the Allies arrived the next morning. Major Kowai left in his memoirs in regards to leaving the immovable wounded this. They did not know surrender, and the shame of being captured was considered worse than death. To take one's life with the weapons used to attack the enemy protected the country and avoided disgrace to one's family. In other words, it was considered to be an act of loyalty to the emperor and the filial piety to one's parents. Further, it was believed that such an act would ensure the everlasting repose of one's soul as a deity in the Yasukuni Shrine. Under the cover of night, the force broke into smaller parties to increase their chances of evading the Allies. Major Kowai, Major Manasse, and Lieutenant Hayashia led the guard of the 41st Regimental Colors. The flag was to be protected with their lives. They would not allow the enemy to have it. On the 19th, General Yamagata, his HQ staff, and 140 ill and wounded boarded two barges. The next day, four more barges arrived along with Allied artillery fire causing chaos as men pushed their way frantically onto the barges. They sailed to Banambari with all their communications equipment aboard, but only part of the designated men. Two more barges came back the following night, but at this point the Allies were occupying parts of the coast around Girawa, and it was not possible to extract the men waiting on the beaches. Thus, they were left behind. The coastal units divided themselves into platoons on the 20th, and they began to make an overland withdrawal. To lift the spirits of the men, Warrant Officer Matsuo said to everyone, They don't hold hands with each other to surround us. There is always a way to break through. A lightning storm provided illumination for the men to march three nights through allied positions before finding a path to the coast to follow. One unit contained one private, Imanashi, who wrote a harrowing account. His group came across a village where Japanese soldiers had earlier killed and buried five villagers. He, alongside the other starving men, dug up the bodies, cooked, and ate them. Imanashi ate part of a human liver that night. General Oda, upon hearing the news that the commander of the Buna detachment had left on the very first barge, declared aloud, I have been betrayed by Yamagata. 
This was because in the Japanese military tradition, the commander of a defeated force does not retreat. He remains and he kills himself. Thus, Oda oversaw the withdrawal of the last units before turning to the last remaining soldiers and stating this. That's done then. I wish to smoke a last cigarette. Go on ahead. General Oda committed suicide after that smoke. As for the men trying to withdraw, they had mixed fortunes. Some of General Oda's HQ staff managed to get through the Allied lines, but most were never seen again. One battalion called the Nojiri Battalion came under heavy attack trying to break through, and the majority of them died in the process. The South Seas Force and other units had been in New Guinea for over six months. The campaign to take Port Moresby had been all but for naught. For those involved, it was a descent into hell. The survivors of the Kokoda Track and the fight for the Bunagona area would never be forgotten in their nightmares. Yet, their war was far from over. As the battered men began to arrive at the mouths of the Kamusi River and the Mambari Rivers, the 41st Color Party led by Major Kowai arrived at Banumbadi with the regimental flag still intact on the 28th. They joined 45 survivors, men of the Takanaka unit, though Lieutenant Tanaka was no longer amongst them. 4,000 men had broken out of Girawa, and of these, 850 had not made it to Banumbadi. They died in combat, or in illness, starvation, or from sheer exhaustion. The wounded left at Girawa Camp numbered 300. Men were ferried up the Mambari River on February the 7th. The remaining men of the Buna Detachment, around 1,900 men, reached Barambari to be transferred to Mambar. 20 barges were sent down from Leh to grab these men. Two companies of the Okaba Detachment came from Leh amongst those barges. They began clearing operations up the Mambari River, and they established a camp in the Ampolo River beyond the Kamusi to help further units trying to withdraw. That unit would stave off multiple attacks by pursuing Allied forces near the mouth of the Ampolo River. The battle for Buna Gona had ended. The Australians had suffered 3,471 casualties, with 1,204 killed. The Americans tossed 13,645 men into the battle and suffered 787 deaths, 2,172 wounded, and 7,920 ill. Overall, on Papua, more than 33,000 American and Australians had fought. They suffered 8,546 casualties, with 3,095 dying. On New Guinea, these men had a 1 in 11th chance of dying. For the Japanese, they reported their losses being around 8,000 men. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I am just finishing up a multi-part series on aspects of Pearl Harbor you might not know. And just another friendly reminder, I now have a Patreon account where you can find exclusive content. 
You can go check that one out at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. The battle for Bunagona was over. Now the Allies would perform mop-up operations and turn their gaze towards Salamaua and Ley. The battle was over, but the war over New Guinea would continue to rage on, providing the island with its notorious nickname, Green Hell. <laughs>